Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This sermon by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The House of Bread. We were taught from a young age that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And if you stick around in Christian circles, you also find out that Bethlehem means house of bread. Well, let's not let our familiarity numb us to the astounding actuality that Jesus calls us to eat of his body, which is the bread of life sent from heaven. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Enjoy the message. Well, you see the title, The House of Bread. Sort of an unusual title, unless you know your Hebrew. Uh, but uh, I, Ed Hudson was saying, he, he came up and he saw my notes sitting on the counter this morning. He said, uh, those are your notes for the sermon? And I said, yes, it is. Uh, and I said, do you want to read the title? And he said, uh, he read, The House of, I think he said breed, uh, uh, bread. So the house of bread. And I said, you know what the house of bread is? Remember where Jesus was born? He was born in Bethlehem. And I said, do you know that the, the, the Hebrew word for Bethlehem, that actually means house of bread? And this was his response. That's weird. <laughs> you know, that sort of fits with my message. That's weird. Uh, wait till you remember that. We'll store that away and we'll pull that out at just the right moment. Uh, this message is extremely simple. And what it's going to talk about is something that could easily bounce right off because we'd say, I know that. Do you guys know who Helen Keller was? Uh, Helen Keller was born deaf and blind, and, which would be quite a reality to be born into, to not be able to see and to not be able to hear. And so she was behaving like a little wild animal. And uh, she didn't have the grooming, the social grooming that a lot of children receive. Even though she had loving parents, they had no idea how to communicate to her, how to train her. And so I don't know how old she was. I'm going to guess somewhere around 8 to 10, but someone could correct me. But she was young. And uh, a lady named Annie Sullivan pulled into town uh, who was, was basically ready to give her life and devote her life to seeing little Helen Keller trained uh, to understand how to communicate and to know that she is loved. And one of the first things she did is Annie gave uh, little Helen a doll, and in her hand she actually uh, did some type of signing or some type of uh, notation in her hand which symbolized D-O-L-L. Well, Helen had no idea what that was. She, didn't, she, she knew that there was something in her hands, but she didn't know how that coordinated with the tapping on her hand. And throughout the next weeks, months, I don't know how many months or even years it was, Annie Sullivan committed to continuously communicating to her. She'd stick a cup in her hand and she would tap C-U-P. And no matter, I mean, Helen would get in an outrage over this, shove Annie out of the way. She liked the touch, but she had no idea what was being communicated to her. There was no way of communicating other than to continue to press forward. And there were so many moments when Annie Sullivan wanted to just give up. And one day they were out by the well and Annie was pumping the water and the water started coming out and she held uh, the water, uh, as Helen's hand under the water and in her other hand she typed or whatever it is, uh, W-A-T-E-R, water. And it was the first time there was an awakening within Helen where she understood that the water she was feeling was actually the same as what was being 
put on her hand, that that meant water. And it was an awakening moment. She had been having these marks on her hand for so many months, maybe even years. I don't know how long it was. And then there was a moment where something triggered. A message like this is sort of like those little marks, C-U-P, on the hand. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, I've received those. But you don't really fully understand how significant this is. That if you understand that, you understand this. That there is something, a living water, or in this case, bread from heaven that has come down. You may know the Hebrew and know that the town of Bethlehem is, also, is called the house of bread. And you're like, yeah, 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 I know that. There's something that I'm desiring today to happen within each of us. And that is with a very simple message. Water, W-A-T-E-R, typed into our hand that there would be suddenly a recognition that God has been sitting here trying to communicate to us for so many years, and then suddenly it snaps, and we understand what he's saying. Helen started running around, and she kept grabbing things and holding it out to, uh, to Annie, and Annie would tell her what it is. She ran to the next thing. She suddenly understood, and her whole life changed. Same teacher, but now there was recognition of what the teacher was saying. We've had a teacher all these years, The Holy Spirit is working on our lives to awaken us, to teach us, to train us. And today I hope he sticks our hand underneath the water and there is that awakening, that final understanding that, aha, that's what C.S. Lewis used to always call it, the aha moment. Aha, I get it now. So I'm not going to make any excuses for the fact that this is a very simple message. But I want us to allow God to tap on our hands the message that we need to finally understand to connect the dots in our spiritual life. O little town of Bethlehem, but thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. Many, many, many years before Jesus came to this earth, it was foretold in the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that this Messiah would come, the one who would rule in Israel, and he was going to be born in a place called Bethlehem. And the expanded name, Bethlehem Ephrata. And so this was a a place that at one point in time had a great significance in Israel's history, but then it just sort of fell off the map almost. And it was one of those diddly squat little towns that no one would ever think of having the king of all kings be born into. But God had a purpose, like he always does, and he chose this little village. In fact, and I, and I said to all, all the kids on Friday night when we were, it was a Friday night, Thursday night, we had a little Christmas message, And I was saying that if Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem, he wouldn't be the Messiah. He had to be born in Bethlehem. This is the proof of his Messiahship. And so this is no small thing that God chooses Bethlehem. Okay, now we know it because we've all known the Christmas story. So we know the little town of Bethlehem. We understand that there was a star that for some reason was hanging out over Bethlehem. A strange thing, a star that just sort of hang out there where shepherds were able to see something very real and brilliant that was taking place 
and it took place, and in all places, a stable in Bethlehem. So not only is Bethlehem not very exciting, but then it's a stable in Bethlehem. God chooses a little puny village in all of Israel, and then in that village, he chooses possibly the dirtiest spot to be born, Bethlehem. This is what it means. Now, this is a little confusing, but house, also in the Hebrew, is a term for body. It's a dwelling place, okay? It's a house. And so this, this body, is a house. And bread also is an interchangeable term for food, okay? So what you see is house of the food of God is another way of looking at what Bethlehem is. House of the food of God. Now, what if we switch out house for body? The body of God become food. That actually is one of the things that Bethlehem can mean. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? The house or the body of God become food. Does it sound like the gospel? Now, remember how it said back here, it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrath. It means ash heap. Place of fruitfulness. Now, that's an interesting blend. Ash heap, which means something has been burned to the ground and no, it has no more substance. It's just ash. But then place of fruitfulness. What Ephrath means is life out of death. What? Okay, let's look at these two things together. Body of God become food. Life out of death. This is the place of new birth. You know, it says in the New Testament that unless you be born again, you can have no, no place with God Almighty. You cannot enter into the life that God has purchased unless you be born again. Here's the place where Christ is born. He is born due to the fact that Christ's body became food. And out of his death, there was life. This is the place that we must go. Bethlehem Ephrata. God is calling us here to start a life with him. This is actually the modern term for Bethlehem. Bait Lam. Bethlehem bears the modern name of Bait Lam, which means house of flesh. Isn't that incredible? The line of the mighties. What you see is the Hebrew culture is very good at maintaining their history. I mean, in great detail. In fact, historians throughout the ages have marveled at the Hebrew ability to maintain its histories. It's better than any other nation in all of world history, the Hebrews. And so we know, actually, the line all the way from Adam all the way to Jesus. We're talking a lot of generations here. And we are able to track all those generations and follow it and understand that there is a line. It's known as the line of the seed. And this line of the seed, you see, Mary, uh, who... Let me go back. Eve, right in the very beginning, remember she, she made the big mistake of eating of the fruit. Well, uh, in the, when God brought the, the curse uh, because of this, one of the basic statements was it would be out of the, the seed of this woman would come forth the Messiah who would rescue the people of this earth one day and it would crush the head of the serpent. So out of the seed of Eve, 
Well, so then we track the seed of Eve through Seth and all the way down through Noah and then through Shem and all the way through to Abraham, then through Isaac, then through Jacob, then through Judah. Jacob had 12 sons and Judah was one of the 12 and out of the tribe of Judah comes his seed. Now the enemy, as Mikey was saying, the big meanie, has been trying to snuff out the seed from the beginning because it was prophesied right in the beginning out of Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. Well, the serpent wasn't too excited about this. The big meanie wanted to get rid of that seed. You know what? No matter what the big meanie has tried to do to destroy that seed throughout the ages, he can't. It's been down to one person, one representative in multiple generations. The enemy has tried to wipe it out, and this one is hidden off to the side, and the enemy thinks he's done it. And he's like, yeah! And God's like, yeah. God always wins. So in this line of the seed, I call it the line of the mighties, it goes straight through Bethlehem of all places. In Ruth 1, we have this story. I'll just read it, and I'll give some explanation to it. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, which means Bethlehem, which is in Judah, which is a part of Israel, went to sojourn or to travel in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons uh, were Malin and Chilion. Malin means sick, weak, and diseased. How would you like to name your kid that? Yeah, you're Malin. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, and then Chilion, which means pining and wasting away. The, by the way, this is not an accident. Everything in Scripture has purpose. Okay, this is very critical. Sick, weak, diseased, pining and wasting away. There's a famine in the land of Judah. They're in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. Yet there's a famine there. And they sojourn to another country to find it. Moab is an adjoining country. So they're Ephratites, which you heard the word Ephrata uh, before. These are Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. Okay, I think I already gave the story. But, so they have traveled afar uh, to Moab to find food because there's famine in Israel. Now, while they're there, Malin and Chilion, which weren't that impressive of characters, I mean, their names are uh, sick, weak, and diseased, pining and wasting away. Well, they get married. One of them married a lady named Ruth, which you'll notice the book's name is called Ruth. One of them marries Ruth, but both of these men die. And so as the story goes, Naomi, who's the mother of, uh, what's his name, Elimelech, so she's sort of the, the mother-in-law figure, uh, says, no, go back to your family. And Ruth says, I will not leave you. I want to die where you die. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So while they were gone, rumor passes into Moab that God has visited his people. And what did he bring them? Bread. So Ruth is returning with Naomi. Where to? To a place called Bethlehem. And there is rumor in Moab that bread is now in Judah. That bread has returned to the land of Israel. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where, her, where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the, the way to return unto the land of Judah. So they two went, because one of the daughter-in-laws did go back home. But, so now it's just Ruth and Naomi. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. 
And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. You know what the beginning of barley harvest even is? That's Passover. So they are arriving in Bethlehem at the time of Passover. So now you're going to notice I went from Ruth 1 to Ruth 4. Just reading the book of Ruth is profound if you look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And Boaz said unto the elders, now Boaz is the closest living relative. Actually, there's one guy closer. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that in just a second. But he, basically one of the closest living relatives to Naomi. And so Ruth has been working in his fields. And Boaz, in, in the Hebrew tradition, they had something called the kinsman redeemer, which was the closest relative, living relative, that was a man. If he could, he would help, or in, in this case, marry, uh, someone who is one of his uh, relatives' uh, widows uh, to protect her. If someone was sold into slavery, he would buy them out of slavery. The kinsman redeemer had a high responsibility in Israel. And so Boaz is the nearest living relative uh, of Naomi. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, which is Naomi's husband, and all that was Chilean's and Malin's. Remember, they were sickness. Uh, and wasting away. They weren't very impressive characters. Of the hands of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. We have this picture in Ruth of this woman who is in desperate need of help and rescue. She has come to Bethlehem at the time of the Passover, it's the place where supposedly there's bread. And she finds a mighty man there. And this mighty man actually does what a man ought to do. And he purchases her and makes her his own, his wife. Okay, does this sound like the gospel to you, by the way? Here we are, desperate. We can't pay our own bills. We're headed to a bad place and quick. We don't have what we need. We're starving and there's famine in the land. But we hear that in Bethlehem there is bread. And so we go on a journey to see if it's true. And we get there and we run smack into Boaz, the mighty man. And he does the work of the kinsman redeemer. They would always remove their shoe. And that was part of the transaction. So Jesus removed his shoe. And he covenanted. And you... The Moabitess, that means from a, a foreigner. You don't, you're not an Israelite. You have no business partaking of this. Here you are from outside the land. And still, the wife of, what was Malin? Let me see if I can get that. Malin, sick, weak, and diseased. The wife of sickness, weakness, and disease have I purchased to be my wife. I know for all of us guys, it's a little strange. It's like, <clears throat> wife? We're the bride. We're the dependent one. We're the ones that need our master, our groom, our bridegroom. To raise up the name of the dead among his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses this day. This is still Boaz talking. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. The Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. 
Obed is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Do you guys remember the, the little town in which David was born? David was born in Bethlehem too. This is a place of the birth of the most mighty men in history. Who else was born there? Jesus. Boaz. David. Jesus. Have you ever seen such a string of men? That's masculinity right there. And it was all born here. You know who else was born in Bethlehem? David's mighty men. They were born in Bethlehem. I mean, some of the greatest exploits that any man on planet Earth have ever done and accomplished. They were born in Bethlehem, this little diddly squat town. It's no insignificant town in God's economy. So this is the line of the mighties. The mighty Goel. The word Goel means to redeem. The Goel among the Hebrews was the nearest male blood relation alive. Certain important obligations devolved upon him toward his next of kin. So who was a Goel? Boaz. Boaz was a, a Goel. Do you know that as it came to pass, if I could give you a little sneak peek into the book of Ruth, it's really powerful. Ruth arrives at the beginning of the barley harvest, Passover. You know when uh, she's redeemed? She's redeemed at the end of the wheat harvest. Pentecost. This is literally according to the Hebrew calendar when Jesus came and did his work of redemption, when he behaved as the mighty Goel. He did it, Passover to Pentecost. He did his work. He took his throne. And he gave us everything we needed for life and godliness and the power of the Spirit of God. He did the work. He is the Goel. It's the Redeemer. The Goel among the Hebrews was the nearest blood relation alive. Certain important obligations devolved upon him towards his next of kin. Number one, if anyone from poverty was unable to redeem his inheritance, it was the duty of the kinsman Goel to redeem it. He was also required to redeem his relation who had sold himself into slavery. Well, that idiot, he just sold himself into slavery. Well, the closest Goel, the closest kinsman, came upon him. He needed to buy the guy out of slavery. If you're a good Goel, you understand your job description in the Hebrew culture. And yes, you're not responsible for the fact that the guy sold himself into slavery, but you are responsible for getting him out. Who does that sound like? That's our mighty Goel, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's him. Can't you see it? Number two, the Goel was also the avenger of blood in the case of the murder of the next of kin. I love this. The Goel is not just the redeemer, but he's the avenger. What has been harassing you? Has the enemy put you under his thumb, under his foot? Well, guess what? You have a Goel. Call on him. Ruth went to her Goel. She sat at his feet. And he stood up. And he said, I will redeem you. You know what was found out? That there was a Goel that was actually in closer relation to Naomi than Boaz. And so Boaz had to go to that other Goel and say, will you redeem her? Because it's your job to redeem her. And guess what? He said, I can't. That's the law. The law cannot redeem you. You can try and live your life perfectly. You can try and follow all the commandments. And you will fail. The first Goel is insufficient. And so Jesus says, can it save you? If it can't, I will. And then we come to him and say, I can't. 
can't do this. I can't do this. I can't live the way I ought to live. I need help. He removes his shoe. As strange as that is, I'm not exactly sure what that means yet. I need to do more study on it. But Jesus like removes his shoe and says, be it transacted, you become mine. I will redeem you from sickness, disease, pain, rotting away. Everything that is happening within your soul, I will redeem you. I'm your Goel. Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That's the word Goel. Every time you see the word Redeemer, it's Goel. And so if you look at this in Job, I love this statement, for I know that my Goel liveth. Remove not the old landmarks and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for the Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause with thee. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. So here you have this culture that understands the concept of Goel. This is significant within the Hebrew culture. And over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God says, and by the way, I am the Goel. What you see in the Hebrew culture is only a little symbol of what I am. And I will redeem my people. What did he redeem us with? His own blood. He didn't pay money, which is what that was always the transaction. It was literally a purchase. Jesus paid with his own life. For thy maker is thine husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Manna from heaven. The word manna, by the way, which most of us are familiar with, I'm not exactly sure why they called it manna. The word in the Hebrew is man. Doesn't that sound like a Jamaican uh, type of word? A man. Uh, that's the word, man. You know what it means? There it is right there. Uh, <clears throat> what is it? Isn't that hilarious? Remember uh, Hudson when, when I said uh, the title is the house of bread? And he goes, that's weird. That's the equivalent of saying, that's man. That's what manna is. It comes down and the Hebrews are looking at it going, uh, that's man. That is weird. What is it? That's what they ate for 40 years. You know when Jesus came to this earth? The Hebrew culture had an idea. The Jews all had an idea of what he was going to look like, the Messiah. He was going to be a certain way. If God was going to feed his people, what's he going to give them? He's going to give them a nice big steak. They had it figured out what it was going to be, and Jesus came down, and they said, that's man. Jesus is manna from heaven. He is literally the food that most of us are like, I don't know about that. I, I mean, that's not the package that I would have put it in. That's not the way I would have done it. Jesus defied everything that we were expecting. But he is the food. And if you don't come to Jesus, you're not fed. 
There is bread in Judah. Go to Bethlehem and you will find it. It might not look the way you're expecting, but it's there. The manna has come down from heaven. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Speaking of Naomi. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna. For they knew not what it was. And Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Doesn't that sound like us? Uh, What is that? This is the bread that the Lord has given us to eat. John 6. And Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So there's a great company of people. And he looks to Philip and he says, uh, Where are we going to get all the bread to feed these guys? And Philip's sort of like, what in the world? I have no idea. Where would we get that? And guess what? Jesus is thinking the whole time. He's testing him. Do you know that I'm the bread that came down from heaven? Do you know that I feed the multitudes? Now, don't you almost feel sorry for poor Philip? How in the world is he supposed to know this? But that's the point. Do you know? Do you know that he's the bread that's come down from heaven that feeds the multitudes? Do you recognize it? Stick your hand under the water. This is the meal. This is the sustenance that you've been craving for in your inner man. Just knowing about Jesus doesn't feed you. Just knowing that there's bread in Bethlehem doesn't mean a hill of beans to us or a hill of grain. It doesn't do anything for us. You must partake of it. As we've always said, Jesus could be hanging at a key right here and you have shackles on your wrist. Knowing, understanding intellectually, scientifically. If someone said, true or false, did Jesus Christ die and purchase keys to unlock you from slavery? You're sitting there staring at him. Yes, true. And they're like, oh, they pat you on the back and say, well, you're fine then. No. The key term in Romans 6 is reckon it as so. Reckon means to take. It means to account it. It means to literally put it in the ledger of your books. Did you take the keys? Because if you don't take the keys and implement them and see them turn within the lock and literally set you free, then you don't have those keys. Sure, he purchased them. But reckoning is taking. So you could say, yes, I know that Jesus is the bread. I know that he is the manna come down from heaven then why are you still hungry? Because this is the meal for your soul. Everything that Jesus Christ did was to feed that deepest need within you that you cannot feed on your own. You're still bonded in covenant to the dead man, to malin, to sickness and disease. Your soul is rotting. No more. Come to your kinsmen. Your Redeemer, your Goel, and let him set you free. Take those keys and put them in the lock and turn it. The dipnon. The dipnon is the word that we understand for communion. It's the Lord's dipnon. It's the Lord's meal. It's the Lord's supper. Partaking of the unblemished life. This is going to seem a little strange. And by the way, I'm not the one that came up for it, so came up with it. 
in the Hebrew culture, there is a very strict dietary code. I mean, we call it kosher. And there are certain things you just don't eat. Okay, shellfish, no, no. Uh, pig, no, no. And they're usually dirtier, they're less healthy uh, things to eat in the first place, right? But the point of the dietary code isn't to prescribe just a diet for us today. It's, it has a greater, deeper spiritual significance. It's a revelation of do not partake of anything that is sacred and set apart for God. There is one who will come. There is one who will come and you will partake of him. Do you know that what it literally says in the New Testament is that you need to eat of Christ's body and drink of his blood? Do you know to the Jew what that sounds like? Uh, <clears throat> cannibalism? This is against the dietary code. Everything that God mapped out. We can't do that. Well, do you want to know how they responded? They responded about like that. We can't do that. There is bread in Bethlehem. Remember I said the, the word for bread in the Hebrew culture is also food, meat. The, the Arabic name for Bethlehem today is house of flesh, which means house of meat. House of meat. When they sit at the table to meet, you know what that means? To eat. It doesn't matter if it's bread, it's chili, or it's meat. It's food. And God has said, I am the food that will satisfy you. And unless you take me in to your life, I cannot work within you. If you have a nice feast on the outside and you choose to stare at it instead of pick up a spoon and stick it in your mouth, that meal will not satisfy you. Our senses are quite amazing. The ones that God has given us, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing you. I mean, you can hear the the crack, you know, like some baked dish, you know, and it's like making this little bubbly sound in the dish right after it's pulled out of the oven. It has a sound to it. Oh, it has a smell to it. And you can see it. Oh, it's wonderful. So your senses can grasp these things, but God is meant to come in. You can behold the creation of God and say, that's amazing. You can behold the work of God in other people. You can see the bubbling in the little casserole dish. You can smell the effects of God. But God is meant to be partaken of. And if you don't ingest the living God into your being and allow him to move in and make you his home, then you have not that which scripture has promised and purchased. A sacred evening meal, the Messiah's feast, symbolizing salvation in the kingdom. That's what the diaponon is. In John 6, here's our great controversial scripture. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, which means like, Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink Indeed. You know, right at the end, we're like, he's talking symbolically. And then he whips out. Uh, and for all of you that think I'm talking symbolically, for my flesh is meat indeed, in reality. I'm not talking symbolically here. I'm saying you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. This is sort of a weird message. I've given it many times, so I'm sort of used to it now. But I know what it sounds like. You don't want to know what happened back then to the Hebrew culture? Jesus knew what this sounded like too. They all left. Like, I don't know what he's talking about, but I can have no part with that. 
he turns to his disciples and say, he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, uh, we don't really have anywhere else to go. Where else will we find the words of life? We don't know why you're talking this way, Jesus. But I think we'll hang around for another season. But boy, you're really pushing it. What's he talking about? This is the kingdom of heaven in a nutshell. Right here. What Jesus Christ has done is made an avenue through which the very person of God can literally enter in and be born in a stable known as us, as a little baby born within us. We become the house of God. And guess what? Just as he was the house of God, made food, which meant expendable for the strengthening of those around him, for the satisfaction of those around him. So we become the house of God made food. We become Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, the second birth. And we are grafted into the line of the mighties. We are grafted in to the line of the mighty Goel, those that purchase, those that go out and transact for the kingdom, those that work to redeem, to extend the work of the redemption, to see it efficacious in this world. We are made food and drink for a dying world, and we know we will die. We take on Jesus. We bring him in, and we know what is set before us. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I send you. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. We are literally to take Jesus Christ in. I've often used the illustration of a plane. A plane has the power to defy the law of gravity. There's a law of gravity, and it keeps us down. It keeps us from pulling off any incredible jumping from New York City to London, England. We can't pull it off, and Jesus says you have to. This is the standard of righteousness. Unless you can jump from New York City to London, England, you can have no part with me. Try it. You'll fail. Your nearest kinsman, the law, cannot redeem you. But there's a greater kinsman redeemer, a greater Goel. So liken him to a plane right now. And the law of aerodynamics can trump the law of gravity. And so as we enter into the plane, did you know that there is a strength to actually pull off what we never could on our own? But we must enter into Jesus. The reason we enter into Jesus, we always talk about it as a cloak of righteousness here at Ellerslie. You get into the cloak of Jesus. You clothe yourself in Jesus because your own righteousness cannot enter into the holy presence of God. And then you're invited into the throne room of grace because you are clothed in him. It's the only way in. And when you get into the throne room of grace, it's not just so that you can hang out there. It's so that you get in Christ so that he, get this, this is very important, can get in you. Because when he gets in you, he changes you. No longer is it just you with all your mess-ups and all your foibles and all your ridiculousness clothed in Jesus so you can get in. Now, it's the mess that you were clothed in Jesus. Now, with Jesus Christ dwelling in you, in you, not somewhere near you, in you, your body is not your own. 
These hands no longer belong to you. These eyes no longer are yours. This mouth is used for a different purpose. Your heart is no longer your heart. It beats with God's feelings. Your mind is now known as the mind of Christ. It can think Christ's thoughts instead of your ridiculous thoughts. This is the new birth. This is the stable once again with the king born within. This is Christianity. It always has been Christianity. Whatever we have today is a truncated version. And it oftentimes gets us cloaked in righteousness, but never with Christ in us. But this meal, the dipnon, the house of bread, the body of God become food, life out of death, this is what it is. Because to have Christ come in us, you know what must happen to us? We must die. We must go to that cross 2,000 years ago in the body of Christ. We must identify with it. And when he died, we died. We must die, but out of that heap of ash comes forth a new life. And that life is Christ within us, the hope of glory. The house of food. Your lamb shall be without a blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. That was for the Passover. This is the type of lamb they were supposed to get without blemish, without fault. But with the precious blood of Christ is a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's how you were purchased. The Passover lamb is who purchased you. And the Hebrews, the Hebrew nation knew that they must eat the lamb. They don't just kill the lamb. They don't just take a spotless lamb and kill it. They take an unblemished spotless lamb, they kill it, and then, strange as it sounds, they eat it. They are supposed to eat the sacrifice. This lamb dealt with their sin. And then they are to eat it. They are to take it in. It was a symbol of the Jesus that was to come, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, the world. This is what it said about the Passover lamb. It must be roasted with fire. We must partake of it with bitter herbs. It must be eaten without leaven, without self, without a hint of impurity. We must have staff in hand, shoes on, ready to go. We must eat it all. We must not waste it, but partake of it to its fullness. It must be roasted with fire. It says John the Baptist, when he talked about Jesus coming, he said, I baptize you with water, but the one that comes after me will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. We take this with fire, with the very presence of God as it enters in. When you are partaking of Jesus, you are partaking of Jesus in the form of fire entering into your life. The burning bush, that's us. It's a normal bush with a fire literally filling it, yet it's not consumed by it. We must partake of it with bitter herbs. Do you know the one you're following? He was crucified. Do you recognize that when you follow him, you will get treated as he was treated. You must eat it without leaven. Get rid of self without a hint of impurity. You do not approach the Lord's dipnon with anything upon your soul. You deal with it. You get it out because righteousness is coming in. Holiness is entering. A rider on a white steed is coming to claim what is rightfully his. We must have staff in hand, shoes on, ready to go. This is a calling forth. You do not take in the life of God so that you can just hide in a closet with it. You take on the life of God to change the world around you. You have a job to do. We must eat it all. We must not waste it, but partake of it to its fullness. Not the least scrap, smidgen 
of what Christ has done, what his body dying purchased for us should be lost. We eat every bit of it, even the, the little crumbs that are rather difficult because there are crumbs in the purchase of the cross that are hard. Most of them have to do with us dying, us giving up our rights, us giving up our way of life to take on his way. The well at Bethlehem, to drink the blood of the great Goel. In 2 Samuel 23, this is back with David in the time of the mighties. The three of the 30 chief chiefs went down and came to David in the harvest time. I em emphasize harvest time because it just happens to parallel with what was happening in Boaz, uh, which was right during the harvest time. Unto the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim, and David was then in the hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. The Philistines have overtaken Bethlehem. It is being owned and operated right now by the Philistines. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem which is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. So we have this house of food. We have the body of God become food and we have this interesting symbol in scripture of the well of Bethlehem. The body and the blood. The kingdom meal of Christ. The Lord's diaped on as a sacred covenant meal it signifies an exchange of life. When you enter into a covenant, what you're doing is you're exchanging your life for someone else's. You give up to gain. Most of us, when we come to Jesus, are only thinking about what he's asking for. What, he can't, can't ask for all that. That's too much. Now, wait a minute. You have a little handful of pebbles, and God's saying, I need all the pebbles. You're like, well, couldn't I keep a couple back? He's like, I need all the pebbles. I mean, it's the most ridiculous discussion that we have because we're thinking about it from a self-centered view. God is asking for pebbles, and he has a truckload of jewels that he gives you in return. Who's getting the raw end of the deal? God is. He's the one that should be looking at us going, you've got to be kidding. I don't want those pebbles. He gets nothing from us, and he gives us himself. Let's get it straight. The Lord's dipnon is an exchange. Your life for his. Who's getting the raw end of the deal? God is. We're giving him our miserable life full of sickness, disease, rotting away. And what do we get? We get him. All of him. His triumph. His abundance. His ability to meet every need within us. His inheritance. Eternity. We get God. I say, let's do it. If I could make a decision for every single person on this earth, it's a very clear one for me. The problem is I don't have control over anyone else's will. All I have is my, my own. And I know what I want to do. I want Jesus to have me. Because I want all of Jesus. I want every crumb of Jesus Christ. Every bit of this meal that he has laid out before him. He's given me himself. And I want to honor him by partaking of it to its fullest measure. It means my life for his, my body for his, my blood for his, my name for his, my glory for his. Now we have communion up here today, which we don't do 
probably as often as we should. But I want us to realize that this is a sacred meal. This is not a small thing. I want you to hesitate before you partake of this today. And don't just run up to partake of it because you always have. Wherever you're at, you just partake of communion. I want you to do this as an act of exchange. This is covenant. Communion has been brought down to such an elementary level, and we've stripped it of so much of its grandeur. This is the Lord's dipnon. This is literally allowing the king of kings to enter in on a white steed and claim his throne within your life. Your body is no longer your own. It's his palace. He does with it what he sees fit. And if you're not ready to make that declaration, then don't make it this morning. I just want you to feel the weight of it this morning. I want you to do wrestling with God on this point. If that, those keys are still over here and you're in shackles, I want you first to get the key, stick it in the lock and turn it. That's more important than this meal because that's the predecessor to this meal. To understand this meal, to fully ascertain and to gain from it that, what, that which it represents, you must allow Jesus and the work of that cross to work in you. And so even if all of these sit up here and no one takes it this morning, I'm fine with that. I want you to take this seriously. I don't want you to mess around with this meal. This is a heavenly statement. You're basically standing before the heavenlies, the angelic host, and you're saying, my body belongs to Jesus Christ. My life is no longer my own. It belongs to him. This body of mine is his body. These hands are his. These feet are his. This heart is his. This mouth is his. These eyes are his. These ears are his. And they are no longer mine. Whatever he chooses to do with them, he can do. My blood, which is life to the Hebrew, the blood is life, is his. And if he wants to spend my body and he wants to spill my blood, that's his business. He spilled the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He can do it to me too. Whatever he chooses to do with his body and with his blood is his business. And we have a name. And we give up our name. And we take on his name. And we realize that we are representing the king of the universe from this day forth. And our glory goes. It's no longer about us. That itch for fame, for popularity, to be known, to be recognized, it goes. All we care about from this point forward is Jesus Christ getting recognized. Jesus Christ being known. Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Jesus Christ's glory. That's what this meal represents. So let's not squander this meal. Let's not treat it with contempt by taking it lightly. Jesus Christ gave his body and blood for us. Let's give our body and blood back to him. Let him take us. Let him have us. Let him do with us whatever he sees fit. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. 
For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.